Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's back to school for children around the world. But with debates continuing over vaccinating children and the Delta variant surging in many countries, will opening classrooms affect the spread of COVID-19? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up also on today's show... We take an adventure into the treetops. Most citizens have walked on the forest floor and probably missed that top 95% of the tree, which is really where all the action is. And can a species be brought back from the dead? The northern white rhino is what's known as functionally extinct. But what we do have is frozen skin cells and blood cells and sperm belonging to a dozen or so individuals. But first... Children around the world are swapping their video games and swimsuits for books and uniforms as they return to the classrooms after the holidays. In America, where the Delta variant is running rampant, some schools that have recently opened are facing temporary closures. And debates have reignited over what sorts of COVID-19 restrictions should be in place at schools. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis forbade schools from requiring vaccinations or mandating mask wearing. On Friday, a judge in Tallahassee overturning Governor Ron DeSantis's ban on mask mandates in schools. They simply do not have that authority. That decision came after school boards in 10 districts had voted to defy the order choosing to require masks due to the state's recent surge in coronavirus cases. Now, school closures have been one of the most contentious policies in the pandemic. Since the start of the outbreak, classrooms around the world have been wholly or partly closed for two-thirds of an academic year on average, with many children reliant on limited remote learning. Eight countries, including Cambodia, Sri Lanka and Venezuela, are yet to even reopen their schools. But how much do classrooms actually affect the spread of COVID-19? Individually, children's risk of contracting severe disease are relatively low, but in school classrooms, children are mixing in larger numbers. So, of course, there is a risk associated there. Professor Mike Tildesley is an infectious disease modeler at the University of Warwick in Britain. He has advised Britain's government on the spread of COVID-19 in classrooms, and he spoke to us in a personal capacity. The other aspect that we need to consider is it's not just the classrooms themselves that present a risk. It is... What else happens when schools are open? Parents mix a little bit more either on the playground or off school premises. And of course, people are able to return to work if their children are in school. So it's all of these things that we need to consider when schools reopen. 
This time last year, cases were rising in America. In Britain, the reopening of schools and universities seemed to cause a second wave of infections. With vaccination programs progressing, how different is the situation this year? Last year, when schools opened in the UK, we do need to remember that it wasn't actually schools that were leading infection. What we did find is that generally, cases did indeed rise in schools, but children in schools in parts of the country where COVID was spreading rapidly were likely to be at more risk of contracting COVID. So that was what we saw 12 months ago. Now we are in a slightly different position in the UK because we have high levels of vaccination. People will be coming off their summer vacations, potentially returning to the workplace and possibly socialising in slightly larger numbers than when they were on holiday. So those all represent a risk. And of course, I would never say that the risk of infection within schools is zero. There clearly is some risk because children are mixing in a way that they are mixing in other environments. So what's likely to happen, I would suspect, in September is we may indeed see cases rising as children return to school. And if we do see a big rise in cases, what we really need to do is monitor what that then does to hospital admissions. I suspect they may well go up, but will they go up on the same scale as they did 12 months ago when schools reopened? You say schools don't seem to drive infections, but in Britain, a November wave of infections seemed to appear first in school children. Back in November in the UK last year, we had a lockdown that schools remained open. And what we saw at that point was this was when the alpha variant emerged in the UK. And we saw a signal of that first in secondary school age children. But that was a feature of the fact that schools were open whilst the rest of us were in lockdown. So it wasn't the children that were leading the infection, but it was just detected there first. What I expect this time, again, it's not going to be necessarily schools that are posing the risk. What it means is children will come back off their vacation. Secondary school-aged children will start lateral flow testing again twice a week. And we may see a rise in cases because, of course, more people are getting tests at that point. As you say, children over 11 in England will be expected to do two rapid COVID-19 tests every week. But what other measures can be employed to reduce the risk of infections in school? In terms of other measures, prior to the summer vacation, the bubble system was still in place. So what that meant was that children in primary schools typically were in class group bubbles. So they weren't supposed to mix outside their own classes. Secondary schools tended to have year group bubbles and they had staggered start and finish times to avoid significant mixing at the school gates. And in most cases, there weren't extracurricular activities. So after school clubs in a lot of schools didn't happen. Now we're in a new school year. I suspect we'll go to more of a risk-based model where certain schools in areas of high prevalence might put some of these measures in place, hopefully to prevent the further spread of infection. And we're also hearing quite a lot about ventilation within classrooms. In New York City, the ventilation status of every classroom in the public school system is published on a website. Recently, the British government announced plans to put CO2 monitors in all schools, and some schools are trialing ultraviolet air sanitation and special air filters. How helpful do you think this will be? Having spoken to some of my colleagues who are more expert than I am in ventilation, having a good ventilation system is really important. Even simple things like open windows in classrooms to allow the air to flow a little bit more does help to reduce the risk. Now, of course, it's very easy for me to say this. And in 
July or in September, that might be very easy to do. In the depths of winter in December, whether this be in Scotland or in upstate New York, where it gets very, very cold, that's significantly harder to do. In America, Israel and several other countries, children over 12 are being vaccinated. In Britain, so far, only high-risk children are eligible. How does vaccinating the majority of children change the equation? Yeah, so vaccination of children is always a really difficult one because there's always been the argument from some people that children themselves are not at significant risk of developing severe symptoms, so it's unethical to vaccinate children. Whereas on the other side, people will say the younger you are, the less likely you are to develop severe symptoms. But actually, these vaccines, although they're very, very good, they're not 100% effective. So Really, we need as many younger people to be vaccinated as possible in order to indirectly protect their more elderly and their more vulnerable loved ones. So those are the two sides of the argument. And of course, you know, there are spectrum of views between those two. If 12 to 15 year olds, for example, did start to get vaccinated, of course, that would reduce the risk to the wider community. It would reduce the risk of school outbreaks. But of course, that needs to be balanced against what the benefits are to children of doing so. And we may need to think as we move into the winter again about potentially repeat vaccinating the vulnerable and the elderly to protect them against whatever may be circulating at the time. And finally, many parents are anxious about their children returning to school. How can they best judge the risk? And I think this is really, really difficult because all I would say is I think parents need to use their own judgment regarding risk. Also, follow the advice put out by the related authorities, whether it be the Department for Education in the UK or the US government putting out information or state governments putting out information regarding the risks associated with schools. What I will say is it is really important that we take that risk into context School closures have been sadly necessary measures to try to reduce the risk of infection, but we shouldn't pretend that they are without their own harms. Children being out of education for a long period of time does affect their development, and that's really, really important. Yes, our children should be in school safely, but we keep them in school wherever possible. What we don't want is very high numbers of hospital admissions and very high numbers of deaths from COVID again. But my hope is that with good levels of vaccination, we should keep those risks down and allow our children to be safely in school. Professor Mike Tildesley, thank you very much. Thank you. For more on the COVID-19 schools debate, my colleague Anne McElvoy recently spoke to the author and economist Emily Oster on our podcast, The Economist Asks. Professor Oster told Anne about the backlash to her advocacy of reopening schools last year and what to expect over the coming weeks and months. Now, when we sort of think about this next phase, we find ourselves in a, in a situation in which vaccines are available to everybody, including all high-risk adults. Many people have chosen not to, to take those vaccines for various reasons. I do think it's unfortunate to put any further restrictions on kids in, in at least restrictions that would be done in an effort to protect unvaccinated people who could be accessing a vaccine if they chose to. Be sure to listen to The Economist Asks podcast for the full conversation. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, 
and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. As we climb up that tree on our wonderful rope with a harness and a helmet, you suddenly come into conditions that are slightly lighter, more windy. There's more extreme uh, weather elements at the top of the tree. All of a sudden, there's a riot of sounds. Meg Lohman is a pioneer in forest canopy ecology. There's millions of insects pollinating and eating leaves and eating bark and living in crevices and moving around and pollinating flowers. So this enormous array of creatures will assault all of your senses once you get into that mid and upper canopy area. You're swaying back and forth a little bit in the tree and you're probably a little nervous. You can't help but just see everything. Meg calls herself an Arbonaut, which is also the title of her new book about, quote, a life discovering the eighth continent in the trees above us. We feel probably as scientists that there's about 50% of the land-based biodiversity living in the tops of trees. And of that 50%, we probably know less than 10%. So it's a real absolute mecca for exploration. Alok Jha, our science correspondent, recently spoke to Dr. Lohman for Babbage. Alok began by asking her what an Arbonaut actually is. It combines the word tree um, with the suffix not, meaning explorers of trees, and in my case, the explorers of the treetops. So I did not invent it, but I hope I will champion the word and maybe more kids will become treetop explorers like me. It gives them at least a name of something to shoot for, right? I want to become an Arbonaut. It's a fantastic thing to want to become. When was it that you knew that it was trees that you wanted to spend your life studying and climbing? I got interested in trees at about age three. I was one of those classic geek children that was very shy and perhaps not cool like a lot of my little playmates, but I loved nature. I grew up in rural upstate New York, so there wasn't a whole lot to do. No movie theaters, no internet, no cell phones, of course, at the time. And I did take solace in playing outdoors, and I loved trees. I guess as a shy kid, it was nice to play with something that didn't need me to talk back. And so from that age onward, I built little tree forts with a few of my friends that I persuaded to do such things and rescued birds that fell out of their nests and collected wildflowers along the way. So I kept this strong interest in nature throughout my life and eventually my career. You are trying to raise the profiles of trees individually and kind of different parts of trees that perhaps the rest of us just don't think about. Um, What is it you think that the rest of us miss about trees? 
Historically, foresters and most citizens have walked on the forest floor and probably missed that top 95% of the tree, which is really where all the action is, where flowers are, you know, coming out and photosynthesis is going on and all the creatures are living and eating and eating each other as well as eating the fruits and the flowers of the trees. So I think we really have overlooked that major part of the tree. I love the whole forest impact, but I think taking an individual tree and realizing it's the home to thousands, if not millions of creatures, is perhaps something we've overlooked in our education to date. You talk about the canopies of trees as the eighth continent of the world. Can you just explain what you mean by that? We use that word because it is this amazing region. It's vast, but yet it's still unexplored. So it's kind of like a landmass just above our heads, but it's an aerial mass of a combination of air and foliage and wind and weather all its own that's quite different from the forest floor. So that's why I call it a different continent. I was interested to read in your book also about the kinds of trees that essentially create their own weather as well. Where are these interesting weather systems and what are they doing for the trees? Well, technically, the bigger the forest, the bigger the weather influence and the bigger the cloud systems. And the Amazon is a great example where we absolutely have great data showing that the Amazon generates, of course, its own climate and it even it generates weather systems. I think you can just appreciate it back home in your own yard, because if you have a little forest or a park where you live, you can enter that place and it's much more humid. It's much cooler and you could measure the temperature of a parking lot versus is the temperature of a forest and you could measure the humidity in the open streets versus the humidity within the forest canopy and realize very quickly that these trees are generating their own climate, either a microclimate in the sense of one tree or a much more major impact in the sense of some of our bigger tracts of forest, which of course leads to that problem as we deforest or reduce the sizes of some of our big global forests. Oh my gosh, we're starting to see changes in our weather, which is not very pleasant for a lot of people. Meg, do you have a favorite tree? I do. The fig tree, I have to say, um, figs, ficus, ficus, however you like to say it, is a very global, semi-tropical and tropical tree. There are hundreds of different kinds of figs, but I love figs because I'm a mom and I have two boys and the fig tree is kind of considered the mother tree in many ways. It provides food for hundreds and thousands of organisms in every local ecosystem. Its root systems tend to span over great distances and it's a sacred tree for so many millions and millions of people in Asia, in India, in Africa. Um, and I have a lovely special little story because when I built a canopy walkway in Western Samoa, the tribal chief nicknamed me Mati, which was in their language, the translation for fig. And I think it was because I was the mom of the project and I was the village canopy mother. So now my grandchildren call me Mati instead of grandma, because I just think it's nice to be more related to a fig tree. And I really, really admire figs. I will say one more thing too, the strangler fig, the cool one that starts at the top with a seed being pooped out by a fig bird and then puts its roots down to the bottom. I view that as an incredibly efficient tree. It's the only kind of tree in the world that starts from top down. And I guess for women in science, I always advise other women, we've got to think strategically about how to be at the top. And the fig is a great example, I think, for how you can strategically think a little more creatively. 
Meg, that was wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Well, thank you. And our thanks to our science correspondent, Alok Jha. Now, regular Babbage listeners know that we occasionally run a book giveaway contest. And this week, we'd like to give you the ability to explore the treetops for yourself. The most perspicacious and pithy answer to this question could win you a copy of Meg Lohman's book, The Arbonaut. The question is, if you could change just one thing to conserve tropical rainforests and ensure everyone else in the world followed, what would it be? Email us at podcasteconomist.com. Remember, we're looking for a combination of intellectual creativity along with analytical rigor using both hemispheres of your brain. The winner will be chosen by me in a completely subjective but non-arbitrary manner. And a link to the formal competition terms are in the show notes. To enter, once again, email your answer to podcasteconomist.com by September 7th. And good luck. And finally, in a conservation park in central Kenya live Najin and Fatu, the last remaining northern white rhinos, the world's most endangered subspecies of mammal. Their mother and daughter, the last male, Sudan, died in 2018. Once Najin and Fatu's lives end, the species will become extinct. But they may not be lost forever. Researchers have been looking at ways to revive extinct species, offering a glimmer of hope for the northern white rhino. There are basically two different approaches. Katrine Braik is the Economist Environment Editor. One is effectively a version of IVF, in vitro fertilization, more or less the same thing as is done in humans, but with considerably more international travel. For the last few years, on a number of occasions, researchers from a collaboration known as BioRescue have flown into Kenya in collaboration with the park rangers there. They've done a procedure under general anesthesia. The two females have a number of immature eggs known as oocytes collected. And those oocytes are then immediately flown to Italy where they are fertilized with the frozen and then thawed sperm of a male who has been dead for some years. And since 2019, this process has produced nine frozen embryos. So there are nine embryos of the northern white rhino species, which are basically being held at minus 196 degrees in an unknown location. At some point, the idea is to put those embryos into a surrogate. It's not actually going to go into Najinur Fatu for complicated reasons. At some point, they'll be implanted into a surrogate female, most likely a southern white rhino, which is a related species or subspecies. And hopefully that will produce live northern white rhino babies. When will we know? The team, when I spoke to them earlier this year, thought that by the end of the year, they might make a first attempt at an embryo transfer. It seems ambitious to me, bearing in mind that they've been trying to do this just with southern white rhinos. So they've been sort of testing it. And so far, they have not succeeded in having a live birth. So obviously, they don't want to 
attempt the embryo transfer before they know that they've got the whole technicality of it sorted out because they've only got a small number of these embryos for the northern white rhino. The reason they're actually so keen to do it quickly is because in addition to the genetic inheritance, there's also a cultural inheritance. So the southern white rhino and the northern white rhino are related, but culturally different. They have different lifestyles, etc. And they want these babies, they want the young rhinos to be raised by a member of their own species. So they want Najinin Fatu to still be around. If they can't give birth to them, that's okay, but they want them to be around to effectively mother them. So that's super fascinating. What's the second track? So the second track is not done in humans. It's called in vitro gametogenesis. And the idea here is to work entirely with frozen cells. So you could theoretically do this with a population that has gone extinct. You don't have a Najin or a Fatu, but what you do have are frozen cells that were taken as biopsies at some point when the species was still around. And obviously this applies to the northern white rhino as well, since as we said, there's a collection of these cells around the world. So if you have a frozen egg and a frozen sperm, then it's relatively straightforward and that is done in humans. But what if you don't have a frozen egg? Because there's really only a very small number of species around the world for which eggs have been collected. And it's a very complicated procedure. What researchers in Japan have shown is that with some really clever science, what you can do is you can take a skin cell and turn it into an egg cell and then fertilize those eggs with the frozen sperm. There's a lot more frozen sperm around than there is frozen egg. So this technique is being used for the northern white rhino as well, right? So they're starting work on that. They have taken some frozen skin cells and managed to turn them into these induced pluripotent stem cells. They haven't yet turned them into an egg cell. But at the minute, what they're doing is they're testing those induced pluripotent stem cells to see if they are, in fact, what they think they are, if they are pluripotent, so if they are able to turn into lots of cells. And they've got some initial promising results, but it's very early days. But of course, presumably, there's more than just the white rhino's genetic material in the frozen zoo. We could go to lots of other different species. So in something known as the frozen zoo in San Diego, they've got cells belonging to over a thousand species and subspecies of vertebrates. The thing that the San Diego facility does that is separate to many of the other facilities that only store is that they actually culture these cells. So they make sure that they're still alive and that they can multiply them. And so far they've managed, I think there's about 10,000 cell lines. So there's, there's a lot of promise there. And I should add that the San Diego facility is not the only frozen zoo, as it were, around the world. There are many of these. So where do you think this is going to end up? Is this going to be just simply a way to bring back species for the purpose of preservation? Or do you imagine zoos and entertainment to be emerged as we see woolly mammoths in either nature or in a zoo? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And the woolly mammoth obviously gets mentioned a lot when you talk about what's commonly known as de-extinction. There's a big difference there. The woolly mammoth, we have a genetic sequence. We don't actually have viable cells that you can grow in culture. And the other important thing with the woolly mammoth is that it would basically only exist in a zoo. The environment that that species lived in the small sample of it that's still 
exists is currently melting as a result of climate change. So bringing back a species that doesn't correspond to any real environment that exists in a sustainable way on Earth today, to my mind, makes little sense. But preserving the species that we have, the researchers really made a strong case for collecting stuff today for a future that may or may not exist. So having this foresight to put things on ice now for technologies that may come tomorrow, that to me makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of value in these frozen collections beyond bringing back a species from the dead. There's genetic value in there. There's a whole lot of knowledge in there that can be extracted without necessarily making babies, as it were. So I think really the message to take away from this is the real importance of preserving what still exists today for an unknown tomorrow. That's fascinating. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. Katrine's report on genetic resurrection was part of The Economist's Technology Quarterly on how tech can play a role in the biodiversity crisis. You can find that at economist.com slash technology dash quarterly. And don't forget, you can also find Katrine's episode of Babbage called The Other Environmental Emergency from June 22nd on your podcast app. And for your best introductory offer on a subscription, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Jason Hosken and Abby Soye Oshindairo. Nico Rofast is the sound engineer, and the program's editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.